This is the Trauma-Informed Education Podcast. Despite growing interest and investment in trauma-informed approaches in education, programs and practices are continuing to fall short in effective implementation. While scholars and influencers point to systemic prejudices and inequities for such failures, others caution against weakening beliefs in the efficacy of such inclusive practices. Teachers faced with disruptive and unsafe student behaviours continue to struggle to translate theory to action. So how do we move from good intentions to effective practice? Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Denny Mellon. Denny completed her Masters of Education at the Queen's University in Canada and is currently undertaking a doctorate. She works as a trauma-informed teacher at the Belong Classroom in the Aliquin and Lakeshore Catholic District School Board in East Ontario. Together with Dr. Sean Phillips, Denny is the co-author of the book, Belonging, a relationship-based approach for trauma-informed education. The book explores the use of dyadic developmental practice in classrooms and schools. Denny will be interviewed by Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy and myself. We hope you find this interview interesting and useful. Two, one. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Dr. Ben Krishnamurthy, and I'm here as always with Dr. K.A. Hi, Kay. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. A bit cool this morning, um, but I'm okay. Um, we're very excited. We've got um, uh, Denny Mellon with us today. Hi, Denny. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for the invitation. No worries. Um, so we might get right into it. Um, I'll start with our first question that we ask everybody on the podcast. Um, so the podcast is designed for educators. So we wanted to um, find out about what your experience was, your own educational experience um, through school and college and how it influences the work you do today. Okay. I, um, when, I, when I thought about my own education, I'm really fortunate uh, that when I look back at all of my combined school experiences, so right from you know, primary right through secondary and university and post-university and graduate work, Um, I really look back sort of with gratefulness uh, and positive memories. So I consider myself to be quite fortunate. And when I think about all those years of education, I can't really recall any of my peers um, throughout all the years that raised any questions about trauma with me. And I'm sure they were there. Absolutely. Um, I was actually thinking about a career in law, not, not in teaching. And right up until my very last year of university, that's sort of where I was headed. Um, But I took a pause. I don't know why, but I just took a pause just to really think about what I wanted to do. And during that one year pause is when teaching came to me. And it was really um, two major events that sort of led to that. First, I I had a summer job with big brothers and big sisters. I'm not sure if you have that in Australia, but um, we do here. And I remember driving a little girl home from camp because her parents didn't pick her up from the bus stop. And when I took her home, 
I didn't want to leave her there. I, it was just an uncomfortable feeling. I didn't know what was really going on, um, but it didn't feel quite right. And my second experience um, was I had attended during that same summer, attended a conference on domestic violence. And I learned a lot that day for sure. Um, but what really stuck with me was the impact of domestic violence on kids. So those two things really um, just sort of sparked my curiosity. I, I wanted to work with kids who might have some challenges uh, that other kids don't have, but I didn't really know much about it. So that's kind of where I, where I started. So off to teacher's college, I went. Um, and here it's a one-year program. Now it's actually a two-year program, but when I attended, it was a one-year program. And I landed in teaching very quickly, right out of, you know, as soon as I graduated. So I was very fortunate there as well. Landed in a rural school, and I just started learning as much as I could. Um, I continued to, the, to do that. Um, I, I did go into special education very quickly because, again, I was quite curious just about the different ways that kids learned. Um, and then I went into a consultant role with my current school board now. Uh, and there I got to really know our community partners. So again, that learning just continued. So I got to work with partners in health and education, so other school boards, mental health partners. Um, and that really sort of led me to where I am now, which is my classroom um, for students specifically with developmental trauma. So at the time that I was starting at our classroom, our Belong classroom, I was finishing up my master's. And certainly that really, um, I, I focused on translating policy into practice, um, because as you know, in education, we get thrown a lot of policies and it's, and we're asked to implement quickly. Um, and so I finished that up. And then as I was working in Belong, I started my doctorate of science in rehabilitation and health leadership at Queens University. Um, and Queens is in my hometown. So I, I love the university. Um, and I'm just heading into my final year of that degree. And so again, focusing on the leadership practices that are critical to introducing, implementing, sustaining trauma-informed education. So whole school approach. Um, so the courses that I've taken certainly have strengthened my learning and my understanding and even strengthened my dedication to working towards contributing to a more strategic framework for our schools in Ontario. So that was a really long answer for a short question. <laughs> No, that was really interesting. And it'd be great to talk about leadership and policy too at some point, Denny, just to hear your thoughts on how that fits in with trauma-informed practice. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the Belong Classroom with Dr. Dr. Phillips about that in a previous episode. Could you run us through um, what the Belong Classroom looks like, the staff, the, the children, that kind of thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Belong is quite a unique classroom. Um, we are the only classroom in Ontario that is completely dedicated to supporting students with developmental trauma. And this is, we've just actually completed our eighth year, just last week, last Thursday. Um, so a little over nine years ago, our Ministry of Education um, opened up some funding for specialized classrooms. And that's a very rare event. Um, but we knew really based on sort of a, a very unscientific analysis that we had a lot of kids in our community from both our school boards. We have two school boards in our community. Um, and we just knew that we had a high number of kids with adverse experiences and they were really struggling in mainstream classrooms um, which are really set up to manage behaviors I mean our school system is set up that way so our, both our school boards and our family and children services um, in in our area here work together put together a proposal for belong 
And we actually chose the name belong because when we thought about our kids with trauma, um, they don't feel like they belong anywhere. They don't belong at home in the community and certainly not in schools. And so the name has become really important. It's one of the questions we ask our kids when they actually graduate um, is how they felt in our classroom while they were with us. And without fail, they always say they felt safe and they felt like they belonged. Um, so that's really important to us. Uh, our staff includes a full-time teacher, so that's me. We have a full-time educational assistant, Doug, who's phenomenal. And we have a full-time youth worker, child and youth worker, and she, Lisa is her name, and she's from our community mental health organization. So they are our community partner. So there are three full-time staff in our classroom at all times. And then of course, we're really fortunate to have um, Dr. Shan Phillips, who consults with our team on a regular basis and gets to know our kids and our families quite well. So the three of us are in our classroom together. We each bring different set of skill sets and expertise, but we are most importantly all trained in DDP. Um, and I cannot stress the importance of having a skilled and a collaborative team. Um, we know it can be a really emotional job and we have to be attuned all day to our kids every moment of the day. Um, so it requires also intensive support of our families. So that team dynamic is, is really critical. Um, we've also kind of expanded our team a little bit in our school to include uh, other important people there that kids will see in any school they go to. So certainly the custodian has been such a champion of ours, um, our secretary and our principal. And um, these people, you know, they really get to know our kids a bit more. And they just help us to see that there are additional adults that can provide a safe connection for them. And our students, my favorite part of the conversation, uh, they are usually elementary, always elementary, um, but age is usually grades three to five. So that's like eight, nine, 10. Um, it can fluctuate just depending on the referrals that come in. So we wouldn't really have a grade two student with a grade five student. So we're, we're sort of careful about that. We are limited to eight kids at one time by our Education Act, um, but we typically have six, sometimes seven, um, but six we have found is a number that really helps to ensure that our adult to student ratio is low enough that we can really stay attuned to each of them at all times. That's really critical. Uh, our kids usually stay with us for a minimum of two years. Uh, the first year is really focused on building trust and relationship with staff. And the second year starts to push into more um, developing peer relationships. And that takes a long time. And it's interesting because the first five years, we had all boys. We didn't have any girls. We had all boys. But in the last three years or so, as our program has become a little bit better known by both our school boards and our community partner, um, we're seeing a lot more referrals for girls. So our students all come to us typically having experienced at least four adverse childhood experiences. So they may have had physical, sexual, or emotional abuse or neglect. They may have incarcerated household members, substance abuse, and, and so on, and a combination of those things. Um, some kids live with their biological parents. Uh, some live with kin, most often with grandparents. Um, so we do a lot of work with our grandparents. Uh, some who are in foster care and others who are in the process of adoption. So we have a really wide range, yeah. Um, and I think it's really important as well when I think about the, you know, our whole classroom team that the caregivers are mentioned as well because we do so much work with them. Um, they're really critical in our classroom and we spend a lot of time with them by phone, by email, by text um, and in person. We, 
you know, we know that a lot of them come to us with their own trauma histories. And so we consider our work with caregivers to be just as important as our work with the kids. And they participate, they attend monthly workshops with us, Dr. Phillips leads those, um, and they come as a group where they also learn about PACE and the approach that we use. And we count on them to share important information and the more they trust us, the more that they, they share. So that's our classroom in a nutshell. That's, thank you for that, Denny. Sounds really sounds like a really interesting model. I'd be curious to hear what um, Kay has to say. It sounds very similar to a, a, a service she used to run herself. Um, I, I was curious about lots of different things. I think there's a real scope to work systemically, isn't there, with the families, with the kids themselves and whatnot. So I think it's helpful to have that kind of multidisciplinary kind of approach to it, really. What what would like a daily, like a day look like in the life of a child that um, belong? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we know that our kids, things have happened to them for sure. People have let them down, frightened them, relationships have hurt them. Um, so we're asking our kids to come through the door every single day um, and to trust us. And that's a huge, huge ask. And we know that that trust takes time. And we, we feel that we have the privilege of time with them. Um, we always like to say that belong, you know, when people ask what's a day like, it's the same, it's different. <laughs> it's, you know, we call it structured flexibility is what we really have landed on. Um, we definitely have structure to our day, you know, there's schedules, it resembles a, a classroom. Um, and the structure, it's a signal of safety for them. So they, they definitely need that. Um, but we also know that we have to be really flexible. And so I may have planned something, you know, a language lesson, um, and their emotional needs trump that every day of the week. So, um, we that sort of structured flexibility takes that pressure off of our whole team really and and me as a teacher a little bit because um, I know in that moment I don't have to put curriculum first I have to put their healing and their relationships ahead of that um, and all of our kids end up being exactly where they need to be in terms of curriculum and academic by the time they leave us. Um, I do plan and teach curriculum, you know, particularly language and math are the two key subjects that I, I must teach and I do, but we, we jump into many of the other subjects and we really let the kids sort of lead um, with other topic areas, whatever they're interested in because we're trying to engage. Um, but we also say inside of that structured flexibility, we're with our kids from bus to bus, so morning bus to afternoon bus. And so the very first thing we do is, is Doug, our educational assistant, will typically meet them right at their bus, welcome them, um, stay alongside them, walk them right. We're, we're in a portable actually, so he will walk them to the back door of the portable where I am. And then I will meet them there. Um, do a quick little check-in and then I hand them off with all of our new um, COVID <laughs> regulations and our hand washing and our we hand out masks and all of that sort of thing. Then they head off to our youth worker. So it's a pretty seamless, you know, within five minutes we have three checkpoints just to see how how they're doing, right? And so that's how our day always starts. Um, and then we usually have about 45 minutes of just connection time. And so it gives us again, a chance to just see what's going on with our kids and just to really enjoy time with them. We've really played around with that timing. Um, and if we go less than 45, it's, it's just not enough time for them. So all the hustle and bustle that happens in classrooms early in the morning, collecting all that stuff, we set that aside and we just really tune into the kids and spend that, that 45 minutes to an hour. It might mean we're playing a game with them. We go outside, we chat, we drop, whatever it is, we might just sit together. Together. 
Um, but that's a really, really critical time for us. Um, from that, we just naturally transition into sort of a snack and then into story. Um, story is sort of how we pull them together. They love every single child that we've ever had come through our program in eight years has loved to listen to stories. So that's really, really critical. Um, it's powerful for our group. Um, it doesn't mean they all come and sit right there, but they're listening and eventually they're all joining us. So that's, that's, there's never pressure to come right over. Um, and then our, our day just sort of flows, you know, I, I, I teach what any mainstream teacher would, would teach, but the difference would be I'm always ready to shift if we need to shift. Um, and, it, and even if just one child needs to shift, that's the beauty of having three of us as well, that that child can, can leave the lesson if they need to, want to, um, but we're prepared, right? We're always prepared within a lesson if there's a word, a phrase, a sentence, a theme that might spark a conversation that veers off the curriculum and that's okay. Um, our day is very much a hands-on day. So we, you know, we do lots of things, especially with science and experiments that we can make a ton of mistakes and we can get messy and we can, the kids can see that that's okay, right? That's part of, of learning and that they become a little bit more willing to take risks with their learning. So we do a ton of hands. I always warn our caregivers that their kids are going to come home quite dirty and uh, we, you know, we're just into everything. Um, and we really work on kind of getting them to be dependent before independent, right? So we do lots of activities that they're going to need us for. Um, and that, that's really hard for our kids who need to be in control all the time. But we always know that's the first sort of little sign for us that they're starting to trust us when they give us a little bit of control. And, and control can be as simple as... Um, or dependence could be as simple as me just hanging their backpack for them, right? Or doing things we know they can do, but we're going to do them for them at first. Um, I, probably the biggest question I get asked is within the course of a day, how do we talk about trauma, right? They, they see it as a trauma classroom um, and it's not on our schedule. You know, we don't have that. We don't have social skills on our schedule, but we don't ever ignore the elephant in the room. It's almost like it's just part of all of our conversations. It's just woven in. The kids very much drive the conversations. So we aren't um, quizzing. We're not drilling. We're not. It's just part of a conversation and us wondering and noticing, um, but we don't ever ignore that elephant in the room. So when something comes up, they need to know that we can handle whatever they throw at us, right? So when they want to talk, we talk, we provide the space, we facilitate. Um, and so that's kind of how our day goes. And, and we spend our last half hour preparing them for transition to go home because sometimes they don't want to go home. And so we have to do some work around, around that and sort of transitional objects if we need to do that. Um, so each day is always a little different depending on what the kids bring. Uh, and we let them sort of lead and there's sort of a lead follow going on, uh, but it's also predictable enough for them that it feels safe. And I can say last week, like I said, last Thursday was our last day and none of them wanted to leave. <laughs> they, they decided we should have summer camp all, long, <laughs> all summer at school. We said no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Denny. I, I'm really struck by how you use that check-in, uh, you know, check-in, check-out kind of system to build kind of a sense of safety um, and how you do that across multiple people. So you've got like a bit of a community of like relational safety around them, isn't it? Um, yeah. That, that really helps them settle in, I presume. Absolutely. And, and the kids, they relate to each of us a little bit differently as well, mm. right? So what, um, you know, a student that is quite connected to me 
I'm going to sort of see here different things um, than maybe our youth worker might. And our youth worker may have a different kind of connection with another student. So it's just, it's nice to have those constant checkpoints and check-ins just mm -hmm. to see, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I was just curious and I'll then throw it to Kay. I'm sure she's got some questions as well. Um, I, I think there's a lot of safety there. Some I find some kids get quite, when you start talking about the academic stuff, you know, the curriculum stuff that, you know, that that kind of triggers off things and helps them feel unsafe in those, you know, because they feel like they might get things wrong or it might be too difficult. How do you build in some safety there, Danny, in terms of introducing those lessons and helping them think about how they could be involved? Yeah, we never put pressure um, in terms of asking. We always invite. They're always invited into any lesson, any activity we're doing, but there's never pressure um, nor is there consequence if they don't join. And sometimes we have kids and we just tell them that we're like, when you're ready, you're welcome. Like, just come on over. And again, because we have the staff, someone can still stay near that child. Someone can pull back a little bit and just be there and not necessarily engage in a whole separate activity, but just proximity is really important. Um, we've had quite a few kids who just academics was off the table. And so our, our whole beginning, probably our first three months, we don't touch academics. We really don't. Um, we're just trying to get them settled to learn, right? That's our biggest job at the beginning is the safety. And if academics is something that really makes them feel unsafe, then I'm not going to touch it with a 10 foot pole. However, having said that, I do sneak it in a lot, right? If we are playing a game, I can tell if a student can count when they roll the dice, if they can they can count the correct number of spaces, if they can read the card that goes with the game, uh, if they can do turn taking. Um, when I read a story, I know they're listening. And so for our kids, I, I should have actually backed up a little bit that our kids, when they come in, we have them sort of staggered. So we have some kids that are in our, their second year with us and some that come in in their first. So our second year kids are ready for academics and they're, they're plowing along. So. Our first year kids get to observe all that, which is so, so lovely for them because they observe the relationships between the adults and the kids that are already there and how we, how sort of our day goes, goes along. So there's never a pressure. Um, we've had kids that just hang back at some for three months, four months. Um, and then when they're ready and they're settled, they always, always join in. Yeah. That's great. Thanks, Denny. I'll throw it out to Kay to see if she had any comments or questions. Yeah, I'm. What struck me because I was comparing um, your space to the space that I used to work in, Denny, which was similar, in that it was um, six students. They were older. They tended to be um, from uh, middle primary, so about year four or five, about ten years old through to fifteen, um, and we had six at any given time and two staff, not three. But what struck me with um, your um, recount there of your situation was how critically important giving the children time is, which on reflection we didn't have given the policy that was around us, just, just the three check-ins, time there, the 45 minutes of that connection time in the morning the fact that they were there for two years, um, some of our our, our policy um, in the uh, environment I worked in 
um, the education policy was that we, uh, we had the children for a school term, which was 12 weeks, and then they had to uh, be transitioned back. And it was, an, uh, as you can well imagine, we, we didn't feel that we saw any real success <laughs> much in that time other than to be kind and hopefully a little bit helpful. Um, <clears throat> but what struck me was, as you were talking, I thought the few children that we really fought for and put forward a real case to say we need to keep this child for 12 months, you know, um, and had to justify keeping them for 12 months, they were our biggest success stories um, because we had time. You know, I mean, I was thinking just all those practical little things you said where they have to become dependent first we miss that altogether um, in that we didn't we didn't take have that time to fill up their drink bottle, hang up their school bag, go, go and find their hat, you know, all those little things that, that make the world of difference. Um, and it really struck me of how important having policy that supports the time that they need to, to, to you know, progress and grow and the other one thing that just really struck me was that when you first started talking about um belong there was no mention of curriculum in there there was there was that connection first learning how to be in a space of relationships and then we'll worry about the curriculum so yeah it it was it's great it just made me think how difficult it is to work in constraints that don't allow those critical things to happen. I mean, we do our best and I'm sure we make a difference, but how important policy-wise and leadership-wise that that support of time is there, however that might look. So, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And and that for me as a, as a teacher, the first couple of years, um, that was hard for me as a teacher to say, whoa, what do you mean I'm going to wait on curriculum? <laughs> but I have learned to trust the process. And I have learned that when they are settled to learn, they learn. And when we see that, like I, when I can tell that, okay, we're in a space where they are open and engaged, then I put as much curriculum in <laughs> We just do as much as we can. Um, but I know I could teach the same lessons 10 times. I could stand on my head. I could be as engaging and possible as possible, but if they're not settled to learn and not feeling safe in the space, it doesn't matter. So, but you're, you're right, Kay, we do have the luxury of time. And some of our kids are actually, we had one student with us for four years because we were his only constant, our team. Um, so we do have that little bit of flexibility with that, which has been um, phenomenal for our kids. And, and they've all, for the most part, done very, very well after they've left us. And that's the part we want for them, right? Uh, and, and our day is certainly the check-in in the morning, and but we're with them all day. So we eat with them, we have snack with them, we eat lunch with them. They're not used to eating with people. So that is a whole <laughs> experience altogether. We're outside at recess with them. So we really are with them every moment. So makes a big difference. It's a lot of time. Yeah. That's great. Thanks, Denny. I, I wanted your take on the um, PACE framework. I know you mentioned that briefly before, and it's a big part of the DDP framework. I was curious to get your take on it as a teacher about how you, how, how you think about it and how you use it to connect with the students. 
Yeah, so DDP, so dyadic developmental practice um, is, is the term we use in education. Um, and that sort of gives me the map, right? That's the theoretical foundation um, for me um, and really helps me to understand the impacts of trauma on the brain and on development. So essentially on learning um, and what that will mean for school. Um, so the pieces fit together really nicely for me. I like the knowledge and the understanding, but the pace piece of it gives me the practical how, like, how am I going to do this? Um, because really we're trying to help our, our students to understand, to organize, to integrate all of their experiences, right? And to essentially move from mistrust to trust and from all those defensive responses that get them into so much trouble um, to open engagement. So PACE for, um, for those who, who are not as familiar with it stands for playfulness acceptance curiosity and empathy and it really does provide sort of that foundation for the way we interact with our students it's a way of communicating safety in all of our interactions and it's a way to bring kids into connection which is pretty tough for our kids with trauma so playfulness um very very briefly here it's just a really lovely way to learn about ourselves, others, and the world. Um, and it's a stance or an attitude. Um, sometimes people think it means we're just playing and actually to the outsider, it would look like we're playing a lot and we are, um, but it's more of that sort of attitude, that stance, that banter back and forth. Some kids can handle it a lot better than others. Some we really work on that part. Um, acceptance is that we're just accepting the emotional experience of our students. So we can't tell them how they feel. Uh, we can't tell them how they experience an emotion. Um, and acceptance is really about being non-judgmental, right? And gives the message to our kids that we're not gonna leave them. We're not going to stop being in relation with them regardless of what they do, that we're going to accept their, their underlying experience. And that's what we're really working on, right? Curiosity, just um, that helps our team to really stay in our own social engagement system. We're curious about the child. We're curious about behaviors we're seeing. Um, and we stay regulated, so our kids will be a little more regulated. And, you know, if you're curious about a kid, then they feel like they're interesting, right? They're not so used to that. So if we want to know about them, they might start to think, wow, am I a kid that's worth knowing, right? And empathy, this is a go-to. This is when we are not sure what to say. And there are some times where we're like, huh, not really sure what to say right now. And so we just say something like, I'm sorry, this is such a struggle for you. I'm sorry, this is so hard. And that can be really soothing for the brain and gives us a place sort of to start. Um, we use pace consistently through the day and, and it is uh, kind of language based, I guess, a little bit, which can be a bit scary for teachers just starting out because you might say something and then a student says something back and then they're like, oh, now what do I say? So it does take practice, right? It really does but it's not a program and it's not a checklist, right? It's rather just a way of being in relationship. Um, and this can be tricky. I admit that it can be tricky because we teachers love our checklists, right? We love our programs. We love do this and this will happen, right? But we can't really checklist or program a relationship into being, you know, we can't, we can't do that. Um, and we pace is something also that we don't say, oh, today I'm going 50% empathy, 20%, you know, uh, curiosity, 20% acceptance, and maybe 10% playfulness. It doesn't really work that way either. Sometimes it's all empathy all day long because a kid is just having a real struggle. Sometimes it's all playfulness. It really just depends on the student situation um, and our relationship. So our REA Doug can be playful almost all the time. But if I am playful all the time, it, it kind of freaks the kids out a little bit. 
it. So we just, we know sort of those parameters. Um, so an example of what a pace might actually sound like in our class. So we have um, a young girl who's just trying to make sense of her story and we are still learning her story as well. But she came in and let us know almost immediately that if any one of us scared her, she would either hit us or she would kick us. So we could have said, if we were not being peaceful, we could have said, oh, if you hit her, so kick us, you're going to be going home. You're going to have to go see the principal, fill in the blank. Um, but instead using pace, we accept that's her emotional experience. So we figured she had to have, there's fear somewhere in there. She's telling us she gets scared. We don't really know what's happened to her in the past. Um, so we just become a little bit curious. We communicate with pace. And so instead we just said, um, we said something like, well, thanks for telling us that, you know, we're going to try really hard not to scare you. Uh, I think maybe people have scared you before. So we can add in a little bit, right? We could just throw in a little line. And then we just added in, you know, do you think you could tell us what kinds of things might scare you at school? Um, would it be noises? Would it be people too close to you? And she told us right away that she doesn't like loud noises. She doesn't like people. She doesn't know coming into the classroom. Um, and she doesn't like too many people coming close to her at one time, adults or kids. So we had some information, right? We don't usually get kids that can articulate that well what their fears are so clearly. Um, so it was really helpful for us to stay attuned to how she was feeling and when those fears might kick in. We didn't want anybody to get hit or to get kicked. So we were just really aware. So it just meant letting her know. Once we sort of had that conversation, we thought about all the different loud noises that could happen, things that could scare her. Um, so we let her know, hey, our principal has a secret knock. And when she gives that knock, you know it's our principal. Nobody else just walks into our classroom. We don't allow that. Um, we're mindful of how many people are around her at any time. And we talk to the other kids about that. And so we just try to try to alert her when loud noises are coming, like fire alarms or things like that. And of course, in a school, you cannot control all the, all the random noises. Uh, so when that happens, then we're just proximity is there and we can acknowledge it with her. So we're trying to sort of give um, words to kids' emotional experiences, right? And pace really helps us do that. So we can make guesses, we can notice their experience, we can make wrong guesses all the time. That's okay because it's the we have found it's the noticing that is really critically important. Um, they feel seen, they feel heard. Our conversations are not, sometimes they're 20 seconds, right? They don't have to be long and, you know, it could be a 20 second conversation and maybe we go back to it later. Um, but as a team, we sort of decide when we're, we're all in this together and we hear things, we talk about things, and then we can, we can decide next steps. Um, one of our other kids uh, is really um, struggling when she works with, with Doug, who is very playful. And so we noticed that when she engaged in some, when he was paired up with her for something academic, she was really struggling. Like she just looked uncomfortable. So again, communicating with Pace, we noticed it. We wondered about it with her. And, and I said um, something like, I noticed it's really hard for you to work with Mr. H. And I'm wondering if you find it confusing because he's usually so playful. And now he's asking you to be serious and he's being serious. Um, I said, you're not sure which, which Mr. H you're getting. And so she didn't respond, but that's okay. And I just add, like, do you have any guesses about this? She still doesn't say anything. That's okay too. And I said, okay, we'll figure this out. And so then we figured it out. We figured it out with her. We figured it out as our, as our team. Um, we're not sure if it's, you know, if it's something about men, 
we have to figure that part out with her um, because she seems to be okay working with Lisa and I, both females, um, but we'll watch and we'll wonder and we'll just keep communicating with Pace. So those are kind of what our conversations are like um, throughout the day for a variety of different situations. Mm. Thanks, Denny. I love hearing those stories. They're such nice illustrations. I was thinking with the first story about, <clears throat> you know, her threatening to, you know, be aggressive. And I was thinking about how um, relationship building is the best form of risk management. <laughs> you know, we get Absolutely. so caught up. <laughs> uh, we get so caught up in trying to keep everyone safe and minimizing risk. But I think if you lean, you know, if you're not reacting to those kind of fears but leading into building a relationship you get such rich information to offer you know mitigate risks and offer kind of support in such a better way isn't it absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and she has not kicked us or hit us once <laughs> <laughs> there you go yeah. Yeah. um and i was also struck by how pace sort of informs the way you do your planning around the child. I, I was really struck by how you were saying you were curious and you're still working out what this is about. And that's a lot of curiosity within the team and between all of you, isn't it, as a work ethic? Absolutely. Yes. So it's not just one of us. Um, that's really critical because sometimes during the day we get separated. So maybe some kids are outside with Doug and I'm inside with another and Lisa has taken another to the washroom or something. And so all those pieces, we all notice different things. Um, and so we can then plan for that. So if we know a student is really um, anxious around loud noises or anxious with too many people, we can start to target that a little bit, right? And, and be a little more intentional about it in our conversations with her. Um, and even our student who's a little bit, you know, confused about the playfulness versus serious, like we, we can take those themes and plan some things around that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's great. I think often heard people say, you know, connection before correction or connection yeah. with <laughs> correction. How do you find um, you use PACE to offer that kind of feedback to students on, you know, anything from academic the social things, Denny? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked this question because if you think about how much feedback we give, educators give in the course of a day, it's a lot, right? And um, I've learned that receiving any kind of feedback, corrective, constructive, or praise um, is very stressful for our kids really, really stressful. Um, and many times they don't differentiate between sort of constructive and praise. It feels the same to them um, and causes the same sort of stress response, usually anxiousness, um, fear, you name it. Um, and we love to tell our kids when they've done something well. We get very excited. We're like, oh my gosh, I want to tell them they've done something well, but I know it's too hard right now. They can't tolerate that yet. Um, and so sometimes depending on, on even the trauma that they have experienced, a compliment could mean something different to them, right? So, and their story. So they might think if we say, oh, you've done a great job on this, they might think we want something from them and that trust just gets eroded. So we have to be really, really aware of how they handle, how they accept or reject any kind of feedback. Um, and many of our kids don't believe they actually do anything well. Right? They don't believe that they could possibly do something great that anybody would think that it's good. So then they think we're lying. So it's a really tricky thing. And, and I always like to know sort of what the internal working model of, of our kids coming in. So they do they believe that they're worthless, unlovable, garbage, rubbish, whatever you name it. Um, so if they do believe that, then how can anything they do 
be good, right? Uh, or worthy of any kind of praise. Um, and so sometimes what, what we'll do in those situations, because we have a lot of kids that come into us with sort of that stance, we don't want to ignore it. We know it's hard, but we have to, again, communicate with pace. And so I might say something like, um, this is going to be really tricky for you. I know it. I know it. I know you're going to want to close your ears when I tell you this, um, but I'm going to say it really, really fast, or I'll say it really, really quietly. And I'll just say, okay, are you ready? And then I might give the praise for whatever it is that they've done. Um, kids that can't handle that, I might jot something down on a sticky note, or I might do some kind of hand gesture or something, right? Um, and, you know, we say good job or great job too often. I find that our kids really need to know exactly what it is that we like about whatever it is that they've done. Um, they need to know exactly what it is, right? Because the, everything has been so general for them. And so constructive feedback, same, that can be really hard, but we don't refrain from giving it. If we see them making the same mistake over and over again, we don't want them to live with that. But again, deliver it with, with pace. So I might even work in, depending again on the student, I might work in Um, and sometimes those mistakes got you into trouble or maybe they even got you hurt. And I get it. Making, making a mistake is really, really scary for you. It can be scary. And I'm sorry it's so hard for you. And so all of the kids, in terms of mistakes, when we give any kind of feedback, they think they've made a mistake, right? So um, for us, we spend a lot of time right up front at the beginning on making mistakes. So it is not uncommon to see me spilling paint, dropping things, spelling something wrong, reading a word incorrectly, um, talking about a mistake I made at home or when I was out shopping or something, because we want them to see it's safe to make mistakes in, the, in our room. And again, having kids that are there in year two, um, they're making mistakes and they're okay with it at that point. So our year one kids can see that and observe that. And when they start to recognize that receiving feedback um, is okay and it is safe, you know, the, the floor is not going to cave in, the roof is not going to fall on them. Um, we just keep working on it very slowly with them as much as they can tolerate it. And as they feel safer and they trust more, uh, then they even actually start to seek it out, which is a really, that's a celebration dance for us when they start to ask for feedback. And, and that can be academic, social, it can really be around anything. We, we approach it the exact same way. That's fantastic, Denny. And it, it's so nice to see the concerted pieces of work you do around making mistakes and get, you know getting feedback and things because there's safety, you're building safety there, aren't you, in, in thinking about your performance and thinking about how you engage. Yeah, everything is to bombard them with signals of safety. They're not good at reading those, right? So they have to experience it over and over and over. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of safety, I wanted to ask you about the tawny stuff around when things do get a bit out of hand, when, you know, there's aggression or running away or, um, you know, the destruction of property. What is your, you know, like, what's your kind of take of it in the Belong classroom about how you manage those things, Danny? Yeah, um, we start with understanding the brain, right? And really, when we understand that, then we understand that the challenging behaviors, some of those things you just mentioned, are really adaptive behaviors geared to survival for the kids. They, they have been survival tactics. They don't know they don't need them in school. So we just are communicating at all times that they're not going to need those, that we're going to be there and we're going to work with them um, in a paceful way. 
And if we, as a staff, we understand we're working from the bottom of the brain up to the top, the top is the last part we're getting to, then it's much easier for us to really figure out what's driving the behavior and to be okay with that. And, and it becomes more, and I'm sure you've heard, it becomes not so much of what's wrong with that kid. It becomes more what's happened. What's happened to that kid? What's driving this? Um, and certainly we use the analogy of the iceberg all the time, right? We see, um, we see what's above, but there is a whole lot happening under, underneath. Um, and we get curious, what, what's causing that aggression, the stealing, the running? I think every kid that's come to our classroom, we have been told that they're aggressive, that they have no remorse, and that they run. And we very rarely get that. We get, we get a little tiny bit at the beginning, um, but when we meet them with pace, that disappears pretty fast. Um, so we just get really, really curious. And we know that most of the time, most of the behaviors stem from fear, worry, or shame. Um, and then we can sort of shift our own thinking around that, right? Um, but I know this can be scary in a, in a regular classroom, in a larger classroom with maybe less staff. Um, but I always sort of come back to if we know that it is based in fear or shame, how do you consequence that? You can't. You can't consequence it. And there's nothing that has to be consequenced so immediately um, unless it's a <laughs> life-death kind of thing, of course. Um, you, but we can wonder about it. We can start to explore it a little bit, right? And really we're just, we're trying to help them understand their own emotions, the experiences that cause those emotions and then the responses that follow. Um, and once we have found, once we have worked through all of that, um, those behaviors that got them referred to us are gone because they're no longer survival strategies. They don't, they don't need them. So we meet every single kind of behavior that we could see um, regardless of what it is with pace. And so even playfulness sometimes. So I'll give you an example because some, sometimes people are like, how are you playful when a kid is going to be really aggressive in that moment? And we have had that. Um, so we had a girl who, who got really angry with, with Doug, our educational assistant. We don't even remember at this point what the reason was. I, I we were in gym is what I remember. Um, and she was just yelling and swearing and she had her little fists and, you know, she was ready to go. And he just in that moment, because he, he already had a bit of a relationship with her and he, he took a little bit of a chance, but he went into sort of a playful mode. Um, and he just kind of went into this karate stance and he just made the weirdest noises and did the weirdest movements. And it just made her laugh. So it was, it let, it gave her sort of an escape route. She didn't have to come at him. She didn't want to come at him with her fists. You know, she didn't want that. Um, but he sort of just gave her that little bit of an out and he became very playful. It sort of startled her. That was not the response she was expecting. And then, then they were able to sort of work through and explore what the actual experience was for her. Um, Swearing is a huge one. We get asked a lot about swearing because it can be quite disruptive. Um, but again, when we approach that, first we make it as boring as possible. We don't, we just don't even react to it. Um, but we have to know for many of our kids that are in pretty tough homes, is that the way they communicate? Is that the language of the, you know, in the home? And so kids sometimes come to us not realizing that, oh, you can't really talk that way at school. People don't really like that. So we figure that out. Or do they swear when they're really angry? Does that give us sort of a hint into sort of how they're feeling? Um, but we do try to, we don't give it very much attention, but when, um, when they watch and they see we're not swearing back, the kids are not responding to them. Nobody's responding to it. There's no attention for it. 
quite often it starts to sort of fall away. And then we sort of go in and approach it um, and say something like, you know, I notice you have a few big words you really like to pull out sometimes. And, you know, my worry is that when you use those kind of words at school, people might have kind of weird thoughts about you and kids might not want to play with you. And I know you really, really want friends. So is it okay if we start to work on figuring a way to let those big words go? And so that might be the start of the conversation. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, connection before compliance. Certainly uh, there are some phrases we live by in our classroom. That is absolutely one of them. Um, first and foremost, our team, you know, really believes that if a child could do better, he or she would. And I'm sure Dr. Phillips said that to you when you spoke with her, that's one of her big mantras as well. Um, we always co-regulate before we ever expect self-regulation, um, which is tough when so many schools have all these behavior, you know, self-regulation tools that they expect kids to use all the time. Um, so we, we engage in that connection before correction or before compliance for sure. And our other one is we name it to tame it. So we make guesses about what's happening. So those are all, you know, phrases that are, are out. But what we've learned with any of the behaviors that might pop up is if we insist on compliance, we immediately are, have landed in a power struggle. And some of our kids are very comfortable in power struggles because it's what they know. They can predict the outcome, right? And so if we think of it from the safety perspective, they're going to they're gonna jump into a power struggle as often as they can because they know what the outcome will be. At least they know what it would be at home. Um, so we, we had a girl that would poke and poke and poke her dad until he would just blow and yell. And then she would actually have a bit of relief. Like, okay, we've gone through the whole cycle. It's done. So of course she tries that at school. Um, and when we didn't engage at all in the power struggle, she got so uncomfortable. So we were able to talk about that, right? And we were able to name it and we were able to say, my gosh, you're just, you're having such a struggle with me. And I think you want me to yell at you, or you want me to get frustrated with you. But if we had just jumped into correction with her or compliance, um, we would have eroded again, that, that sense of safety for her. And we never want to, um, try to get compliance through fear, right? Adults can be very scary. So we don't ever wanna scare our kids into compliance regardless of, of the behavior, right? So. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Lots of really practical strategies, Denny. I really appreciate it. I wanted to <clears throat> talk to you about educational policy for a minute. You mentioned that earlier on. Um, when you were describing the class, uh, you know, it sounded like really, um, exhausting work, <laughs> being tuned in and thoughtful and responsive. And it's extraordinary that you're able to do that with the um, PACE model. Um, one of the things I've noticed, and Kay might um, agree with this too, is sometimes with systems, uh, I think it's great that you're resourced well, but equally, I think when you get tired and worn down, you start to slip into that fight or flight mode, I think at times, and you become really reactive um, to putting out fires. And, and, and I think that wears people down to, you know, not thinking about the kids in the best way, you know, where you start, you know, getting really tired and negative. What, what do you think needs to happen at that systemic level so we can serve our kids better, but uh, also protect our staff in a way, do you think? Yeah, so protecting our own brains, right? That is really, really important. Um, and I think that's different for every person, certainly. Um, you know, it, I'm glad you bring it up. 
And admittedly, I have to work on that. I'm getting much better at that. Uh, And I am fortunate that I have a team with me. That's been really critical. Um, And whether you have a team, I'm fortunate to have the team and I have Dr. Phillips. But if I were in a mainstream classroom, I would try to find somebody, right? A a person that you could could talk with. Um, I remember at the very beginning, it was really hard. Their stories are heartbreaking, right? And I, we would, at the end of the day, especially Doug and I, we would just be so saddened by it. And we had to accept we can't change it. We cannot change what had happened to any of our kids. Um, and we wouldn't be able to stay attuned as we do all day long if we were sad all the time. And so we have really just worked on that, that you're right, it, it's absolutely exhausting. And when our day is done, we need to leave it leave what's gone on in the classroom. Um, that doesn't always happen because lots of times there's after, after hours calls to families and things like that and supporting them. Um, and I also have my own family, right? So I don't want them to be impacted by my job. So we all have our, our, our own ways of sort of protecting ourselves. Um, I guess I, I, I'm fortunate because we build that time in at the end of each day because we don't want any one of us to go home carrying an emotional weight that we don't need to carry on our own. So sometimes our debrief is 10 minutes, sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's two hours. It just depends on who needs what. So once the kids leave, it becomes really about the adults. Um, And we have to find time for that. And I don't think that that's built into many schools. You know, people have very busy lives. So when the day ends, they're out the door. But I think if you really are doing this kind of work, um, consistently, and you don't want to get into that blocked care, you don't want to become reactive, um, you need to sort of find people you can chat with. And if it means you vent for a few minutes, you vent. If it means you cry, you cry, um, or you laugh at it, whatever it might be, but you've got to find that time. And that really has helped our own learning, our own skill development, and absolutely our well-being. Um, because we want to care, but we don't want to carry, right? We don't want to bring it home. And at the beginning, we were doing that. (laughs) And we all have our own kids. And so um, we had to be careful about that. Um, We also, what I've done as well is found other people, not necessarily right within my team, but other people in other schools that are just interested in the work, right? And finding that they have kids that they are trying to figure out as well. Um, so we have a group of, of um, teachers and principals. We just get together every, you know, we were in person, of course, every maybe six weeks. Now we're virtual, um, but just to share stories, right? And to laugh and to just say, hey, you know, what would you do in this situation? Uh, and that's been really, really important for me. But we actually, one of the superintendents sort of made that happen. So we do need some sort of system level pushes uh, and support and almost permission, right, to be able to do that. Um, but those have been the sort of the critical pieces for, for me and for our team. Yeah. That's fantastic. I loved how you said to care, but not to carry. I think that's a really nice way to think about it. I think I'm just aware of the time, Denny, we really appreciate your time. I'll just throw it over to Kay and then we'll um, wrap things up. Okay. I was just very quickly thinking about how, everything that we do for children relates to everything we should be doing for ourselves and how the policy and the practice and our daily being as a teacher needs to have that structured flexibility where you do have 
the important time set aside that it's okay to sit with a colleague, burst into tears and go, okay, I'm okay now for tomorrow. <laughs> or, but having that structure that makes sure that that check-in for the teacher is is regular or actually begins to happen because you're right, it's like the kids, you can just get caught in your own chaos and stress and you just don't find the time for that. So you do need, like you said, your superintendent was the instigator. You do need some outside help and you do need those connections where somebody puts into your life some structured flexibility for your mental health. So, yeah, Absolutely. thank you. Yeah. And it takes work, right? It's not, yeah. it doesn't come easy to some people for sure. No, so no. it does take work and it, and it's too big. I find for just one classroom or one teacher, it does have to be sort of a community collaborative effort. So mm, absolutely to support each other. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you, Denny. Was there any um, resources or some ways that people can get in on that little group you've got going? <laughs> oh, well, that one, you'd have to come to Kingston. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, yeah, we've sort of uh, put it on hiatus for the summer, but you never know in the, in the fall. <laughs> Yeah, Anywhere it's a great group and it just grows, right? Whoever wants to drop in, drops in. And if they can't make it one time, it's okay, but it's available. It's there. It's fantastic. Us. Sounds like a great idea. Um, yeah. Was there any way people could get in touch with you if they had any questions or comments at all? Um, certainly, uh, probably email would be best. Mm -hmm. Um, is that, did you want me to give you that? Uh... Yeah, you can give me that and we can share that. And, and I think um, Dr. Phillips has previously shared um, I think websites for the DDP yeah. resources as well. So I think that would be valuable for people listening in. Yes, um, it's but, wonderful. Yeah, thank you, Denny. We really appreciate your time. It was really practical. It was great to hear um, the way you've kind of structured the school there and the work you're doing. So um, thank you very much. And I hope we can keep in touch. Thank you. I've Thanks. enjoyed my time with you both. That was our interview with Denny Mellon. To access the resources discussed in the interview and to learn more about trauma-informed education, visit www.tipbs.com. That's T-I-P-B-S.com. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, consider providing us with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.